As we have considered the subject, we have noted a number of different terms, different descriptions of revival that are given. We have also examined some of the examples of revival times when the Lord moved in power in days that are gone. Uh, We have spoken about some of the experiences that people have had, preachers and others, about the conversions, about the prayer meetings, about the general results of God moving by His Spirit. Right at the beginning of this series of messages, I quoted Psalm 85 and verse 6, and I've quoted it quite a bit along the way. The Scripture says there, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? This is a prayer that was prayed thousands of years ago. It was prayed by the psalmist. But we might ask the question, is it a petition, is it a prayer that is now obsolete? In other words, can we use these same words in prayer? Or have we reached a stage where we no longer can pray for the Lord to revive His work? Well, I see nothing in Scripture that tells me that there will come a time when we no longer need to pray for the reviving and quickening work of God's Spirit. But rather, the same request that the psalmist made could, could, can, and should be made before the God of heaven even in our day. I have read and I've seen sermons by those who would tell us that this is no longer a prayer to be uttered by the church. And they give various reasons for that, most of them eschatological. In other words, because of the end times and what they believe of at the end times, there will be no general revival and therefore we needn't be praying for it. Well, I reject that utterly. And I want to say that again this morning. I do not believe that at all. I don't believe it's right for anyone, Bible believer or not, to attempt to rob the church of the great majority of God's promises, including promises regarding revival. Do we live in evil times? Of course we do. Are they becoming more evil? They certainly are. Is the age dark? It certainly is. But none of these things are evidence that revival is not going to come. Because as I look at history, I discover that some of the days just prior to some of the greatest revivals were sinful, dark, and black. I've been reading some more accounts from church history, even this week. Uh, One writer by the name of Arthur Wallace affirmed that the prevalence of lawlessness in the world and deadness in the church are often an indication of impending revival. Now, why would that be? Well, we look at that verse that we studied in Psalm 102. It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. This is the very reason why we need revival. Because there had been such a breaking of the law of God. You've often heard it said, no doubt, the darkest hour is often just before the dawn. 
And that is certainly true in spiritual things. Those who expect to see a revival that's heralded by a marked decrease in wickedness or by a significant improvement in the spiritual condition of the church are mistaken because almost always the reverse is the case. One writer in talking about an 18th century revival said this. Listen carefully. The Reformation was a spent force. The ministry was largely corrupt. Some sought in vain even for a sound gospel preacher in the city of London, England. The Sabbath day was a day of general carousal. Public blasphemy was lascivious and corrupt. God was openly defied. The outlook was dark indeed. Here and there, a few godly men and women were crying to God for reformation and revival, and then the Lord made bare His holy arm. There were three men born in one year, 1703. John Wesley in England, Gilbert Tennant in Ireland, and Jonathan Edwards in America. Eleven years later, George Whitfield was born. Those four men were the human agents of the great spiritual awakening that broke like a storm over England and America. Jonathan Edwards has often been mentioned in relation to revival. In 1742, that great man wrote, quote, Who that saw the state of things in New England a few years ago would have thought that in so short a time there would be such a change? How dead it was everywhere before the work began. You see, it's often darkest just before the dawn. One man in describing the prevailing conditions in America before the 1857 revival, the Fulton Street permitting revival, said this, At the time approaching that divine visitation, the people were living in idle luxury. Wines were plentiful. The theatre and the dance gripped a pleasure-bent people. Divorce was easy. Feminine smokers were numerous. Free love, gambling, robbery, murder, and mob administration were widespread. Sunday was a day of pleasure. Vicious cults captured the minds of thousands. Infidelity and atheism were rampant. The consciences of men became hardened indifference to spiritual religion generally prevailed. This man was writing in 1857. He could just as easily be writing about the 21st century. Because that's exactly the way things are today. Widespread apostasy. Increased false doctrine. Complacency among believers. Lethargy in fundamentalist circles. But this is the very kind of time when God has often worked in the greatest power. Sometimes the darkest hour was just before the dawn of a great and wonderful spiritual day of God's right hand. So even in the worst of times, in days such as we live in today, we actually do have a right to expect a gracious revival of God's Spirit. 
dark days may be harbingers of revival. That's what I want to speak about for a time this morning. Harbingers of revival. There are tokens, if you like, of a coming revival. Harbingers of an approaching tide of blessing. And I want us to think about these today. There are two main points that I have. First of all, before revival comes, one of the great harbingers of it is a renewed interest in the subject. A renewed interest in the topic of revival. I have examined a lot of revival narratives from church history. And very often I've found that among a few faithful Christians, there was kindled an interest in the subject of spiritual awakening. They began to be interested in the whole topic of revival, so that sermons would have been preached upon revival. Books were published and read on revival. And when those things became evident in the church, it was the commencement, it was the beginning of a great work. We read before one of the sermons the words of Psalm 44, verse 1. Let me read those words again. Because this is exactly where we are this morning. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what work Thou didst in their days in the times of old. We've heard it. We've read it. Sermons have been preached upon it. We may not ourselves have experienced it, but we most certainly have some knowledge of days of revival from what we've read, especially in church history books. Do you know it was the practice of the great Robert Murray McShane, the minister of St. Peter's Dundee, to read extracts from books on revival to his people in his weekly prayer meetings? In fact, when McShane went to Dundee, there was no weekly prayer meeting. And he started that weekly prayer meeting and he began to read extracts from books on revival to kindle a desire in their hearts for the same thing to happen in their day. He read extracts of accounts of revival in a place called Kilsyth, where the father of William Chalmers Burns had ministered See, McShane knew something. He knew that the study of God's works in the past, the study of past revivals, is often used by the Holy Spirit to create a desire in believers for another period of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Again, if I might just refer to Jonathan Edwards, the great instrument of the awakening in the 18th century, in the Northeast, he said this, It has been found by experience that the tidings of the remarkable effects of the power and grace of God in any place tend greatly to awaken and engage the minds of persons in other places. And so it has proved in times preceding some of the great revivals. There was a book written by Dr. Paisley called The 59 Revival. In it he quoted copiously from a book 
by William Gibson called the Year of Grace. And he referred to the fact that the news of the Great Awakening in America in 1858 became to folks in the north part of Ireland like a cloud the size of a man's hand was to Elijah. It was a certain harbinger of the sound of abundance of rain. And and, and so great was the interest in the American movement that the General Assembly meeting in Dublin in 1858 appointed two of their ministers, a Dr. William Gibson, who of course wrote that great book on the 59 revival, and the Reverend William McClure to visit North America. Now in those days, you couldn't just get a hop on a flight from Dublin to Newark and be there in about six hours. In those days, you had to go by ship. But those men came, and they visited the centers of revival, like the Fulton Street Revival. And they began to rejoice in what they had seen of the grace of God at work. Upon their return, those two deputies from the Presbyterian Church held many public meetings, bearing testimony to what they had witnessed of the remarkable outpouring of God's Spirit across the Atlantic. And that united testimony of theirs contributed to the spiritual background of the revival that broke out in Ireland. A Reverend Isaac Nelson, who was the minister of Donegal Street Presbyterian Church, in his bitter attack on the awakening, published under the title, The Year of Delusion, unhesitatingly described one of these deputies, one of these ministers, as, quote, the gem of revival imported into Ireland. So he was mocking the revival. He was trying to say that it was something spurious, but he had to admit that one of those two men that visited the revival in America had brought a lot of the same spirit back with him. Because there was an interest created in the hearts of people. As I told you before, we used to minister a couple of miles away from Cambuslang in Scotland. Before the Great Awakening at Cambuslang in 1742, the minister there, called the Reverend William McCulloch, used to read out to his congregation reports of the astonishing effects of the ministry of George Whitfield in England and in America. The strange thing is, before long, those very things were happening amongst them in Cambuslang, and George Whitfield visited Cambuslang at the height of the revival. So here they are reading about revivals involving Whitfield, and the very same spirit broke out in their own place. If you turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 15, there's a verse there I want to mention, Second Chronicles 15. And it's verse number 8. There were words that were spoken, that were heard by King Asa. And it says, 2 Chronicles 15, 8, And when Asa heard these words, and the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin, and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim, and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. See, the address 
about former awakenings acted as a stimulus to Asa. The thought was what had happened before could happen again. And this, folks, is the real purpose of preaching upon revival and reading about it. We don't want to be mere historians. We don't just want to be able to say, well, I remember reading about this and that in history, and wasn't that wonderful? End of story. No. It is that we might catch the burden for it in our own day and generation. Surely we should want the same things to happen in our day. You know the revival in Jonathan Edwards' church in the 18th century was occasioned by the hearing of revival in England. They'd heard about it. And the story of revival in his church called forth prayerful and expectant effort in other quarters. The revivals in England and in Ireland and Wales in 1859 was subsequent to news being given of an awakening in the U.S. I just mentioned that. And the Irish and Welsh revivals led to similar works of grace in England and Scotland. See, the fire spread as the news of the fire spread. We believe that a desire... For more knowledge of the subject of revival is a good thing. The reading and hearing of revival narratives and sermons will, if God is pleased to do it, produce a hunger and a thirst for revival in our hearts. Listen to this wonderful promise of God. It's still in the Bible. It has not been scrubbed out. It has not been removed. It has not become obsolete. Isaiah 44 And verse 3. Listen carefully. This is the Lord speaking. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. And floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed. And my blessing upon thine offspring. That very promise was used by God. In one notable revival in Scotland. People began to plead on that word. They began to bring this word before the Lord. And they said, Lord, you have said, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. So Lord, make us thirsty for revival. We are living in dry and and, and dusty times. We need the floods on the dry ground. Pour out thy spirit. And God was pleased to do it. A renewed interest in the subject of revival must be a token which would lead us to expect revival in our own day. It is a harbinger of revival. But there's a second thing that is a really hopeful token of revival. Here's another harbinger of a work of God's grace in revival. Not only is there a renewed interest in the topic... But there is a renewed intercession at the throne for revival. You've heard me say that prayer has always had a large part to play in revival. There's never been a revival without prayer. There has never been a true revival that has not resulted in increased praying. 
large prayer meetings, such as I had mentioned there in Robert Murray McShane's church. He had difficulty getting one prayer meeting going. But when revival struck in that St. Peter's church, there were 39 prayer meetings every week. And five of them conducted by little children. That's an amazing thing. But that's what God does in times of revival. Isn't it interesting that the psalmist was praying when he said, Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in it? That's a prayer. That's a prayer for revival. Wilt thou not? Lord, would you not do it again? Would you not revive us again? How we need to pray for a breath of God. I read two scriptures this morning in our Bible reading. Both of them are prayers. Isaiah 64 verse 1. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens. That thou wouldest come down. It's as if the Lord is behind the curtains and he pulls back the drapes and he appears. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens. That thou wouldest come down. That the mountains might flow down at thy presence. And again, the great prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. It's listed here in the chapter 3 as a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, upon Shigianoth, which is a musical term. It was a a prayer that was actually sung. Because at the end of the chapter, you see it, it says, to the chief singer on my stringed instruments. But what was the prayer? Verse 2. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive Thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known in wrath. Remember mercy. So here's a man who's praying at a time when we might expect anger and wrath and judgment from God. Don't we live in such a day today? Sometimes I wonder why the Lord even puts up with it. You think they've plumbed the depths until they go just a little bit further again. We have a spectacle this week of so-called trans activists supported, by the way, by your president having a day of rage or vengeance, I think some of them are calling it. And some of those same people Blaming the victims of the shooting in Nashville for what happened. It was their fault. You know why? Because they hold to the Bible which teaches that such sexual perversion is wicked. And because they hold to that, that really annoys these people. That really is such an act of violence toward them that you have to excuse anything that they do Responding to that. So the shooter the other day was just acting out on anger created by Christians. You say, don't be ridiculous. Well, that was a statement put out by a trans so-called group. All over the media. Oh, well, some media. Because they don't like to highlight this garbage. But that's the kind of day we're living in. And I look at that and I listen to that and I think, if I, if, if I was the Lord, I'd just 
destroy the whole lot of them instantly but you see in wrath God may remember mercy God could even save some from among those wretches that's the kind of God that we serve but this is a prayer isn't it in wrath remember mercy Lord you could send judgment in many ways we could say that a lot of the things that are happening are already a judgment but Lord in in spite of all of that your people are praying there's a remnant in the midst of this wickedness for their sakes wilt thou not revive us again Lord in the midst of the years make known in wrath remember mercy these are prayers for revival that I've just mentioned Habakkuk 3 Isaiah 64 Psalm 85 and verse 6 and it's always a hopeful sign when prayers are constantly being offered for revival some of you may well have Matthew Henry's commentaries Matthew Henry was a great commentator and a great preacher And one of the things he said about revival was this. When God intends great mercy for his people, he first of all sets them a praying for it. Let me repeat that. When God intends great mercy for his people, he first of all sets them a praying for it. In other words, prayer and prayer meetings are such a hopeful sign. Because the Lord doesn't have people to pray to waste their breath. And this has been the case throughout church history. There was a revival in 1859 in the Principality of Wales. The very same time that God was working in America. It came in answer to the fervent prayers of burdened believers. Again, the news of the American revival had travelled To Wales, it created in the hearts of many Welsh Christians a longing for a spiritual awakening. There were many churches, apparently, that held a day of prayer for revival on the first Sunday of August, 1858. In September of that year, just a month later, the Reverend H. Jones returned from America full of the spirit of prayer and revival. Another minister, the Reverend David Morgan, came into contact with him. And soon they were discussing the whole work of revival. And they decided that the best way to arouse their country was to organize prayer meetings. And soon the fires of revival began to kindle. Because God began to answer their fervent prayers. There was a time of awakening as recently as 1949 off the west coast of Scotland on an island known as the Isle of Lewis. Due to the growing carelessness towards Sabbath observance and public worship, the spirit of pleasure that had taken hold of the younger generation, the neglect of family worship, etc., on the island of Lewis, because of this, there were a number of people, not many, a few men and two elderly women, who entered into a solemn covenant with God to pray until revival would come. Together they prayed for many months. And what was the promise they pleaded? I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground, 
Isaiah 44. In the wee hours of the morning, during a remarkable prayer meeting that was conducted in a barn, a mighty revival began which shook the whole community of Lewis. Revivals in the past that have been spoken of by others subsequent, they followed the earnest and continual prayers of some faithful souls who petitioned God for an awakening. When I think again of the Canvas Line revival, William McCulloch stated that that revival came after such preparations as an extensive concern about religion, gradually increasing, together with extraordinary and fervent prayers in large meetings, and particularly in relation to the success of the gospel. Now let me just again put this little caveat in. We must always remember that revival is a sovereign work of a sovereign God. God will do what he will, when he will, how he will. We can't dictate to God. We're not going to be able to tell God, I'm going to put a gun to your head, Lord. This is what you must do. No, that can't happen and it won't happen. However, our sovereign God employs means. He uses means. For example, when people get saved, it is by the foolishness of preaching. God could save everyone that he ever saves without any human instrument ever being used. But that's not generally how God has chosen to work. God has chosen, the Apostle Paul put it, the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. He called his disciples. He sent them out. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is your responsibility to be speaking to others about the Lord. God uses our faithful witness. He uses faithful preaching. These are the means that he uses. But God also encourages and exhorts his people to pray. To call upon him. To plead before him his own sure promises. That they might be fulfilled. Think of the psalmist again. In Psalm 81 and verse number 10. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. He'll fill our mouths with petitions, with prayers to him. God directs, and he expects his people to stimulate their hope in himself by recalling his past achievements on their behalf. Now, not only would the Lord have us to consider his mighty acts in the past, but to this end, that we might be fervent in prayer for a repetition of those acts in our day. See, that's what prayer is to be focused upon. When we're praying for revival, we're praying for that which God has done before. And it's scriptural. It's scriptural. The Bible talks about breaking up your fallow ground. In the book of Hosea, in the chapter 10, and in the verse number 12. Hosea chapter 10 and verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, 
For it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Praying for revival is scriptural. The great preacher in England, Campbell Morgan, said, We cannot organize a revival, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. And one of the sails that we can set is that of fervent intercession. The infallible sign of impending revival is a spirit of prayer for it. When a burden of prayer rests continually upon the hearts of God's people, a spiritual awakening is imminent. Someone said, A revival may be expected when Christians have a spirit of prayer for revival. That is, when they pray as if their hearts were set upon it. When they feel the want of it, they pray for it as if they could not be denied. What constitutes a spirit of prayer? Prayer is a state of the heart. The spirit of prayer is a state of continual desire and anxiety for the salvation of sinners. It is something that weighs us down. I know that the Lord would do that in our hearts. I ministered in the city of Glasgow in the suburbs. And in that very city, a week back in 1840, there were a series of lectures on revival. One Reverend Alexander Cumming said at that time, As God appears to be diffusing a general spirit of prayer, we have reason to expect a general Revival. Yes, prayer at God's throne is a harbinger of approaching blessing. I think the day of Pentecost is a great example of that. And history is full of illustrations of that. That prayer for revival is the harbinger of revival. I have a paper that's called Notable Records of Great Revivals in Scotland. One of the ministers who was involved, who preached at Robert Murray McShane's church back in 1839 when revival came, was William Chalmers Burns. He was a great man of God. Burns later went as a missionary to China, and he was buried there. Certainly his heart was buried in China. But he was from a place called Kilsyth, which is not far from Glasgow. And for some years before the revival scenes, some of the Christian ministers and people had been praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Here and there in Scotland, there were little companies of praying groups who sighed and cried over the present low spiritual state of the people generally. From 1838... Prayer meetings became more numerous and more fervent in Kilsyth. Notable conversions to Christ became more frequent. And the expectation of a heavenly shower of blessing increased. Generally, it is true that revivals appear after much prayer and earnest expectation. There are so many things that I could read connected with that. Uh, we haven't got time this morning to be able to deal with it all. But I can tell you 
that it is true of revival as it is true of many of the blessings promised to the people of God in Scripture. They are annexed to prayer. Think of this great verse. I want you to turn to it for a moment. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. And if we had time, we could go through this chapter and notice how many occasions the Lord uses the term I will. I will, I will, I will, or will I do this and that and the other. All the way through. For example, he says in verse 23, I will sanctify my great name. Verse 24, I will take you from among the heathen. I will bring you into your own land. Verse 25, then will I sprinkle clean water. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And so on. Right through the chapter, God is over and over and over and over again saying, I will do this. I will do that. I will do this. But notice how it finishes up. In verse 37 and 38. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock, as the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And then the following chapter contains the dead and dry bones all coming together and becoming a great army, which is in itself a picture of revival. Notice how the Lord says, I will do all these things, but I will do these things because I am inquired of by the house of Israel. In other words, you will pray for these things. See, the Holy Ghost, who alone gives revival, for it is an outpouring of his gracious influences, he is promised to us in answer to prayer, isn't he? Jesus said, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? We must pray for the outpouring of the Spirit. There ought to be a praying earnestly and continuously for the power of God to be poured out. There's no doubt that we live in a day when revival is needed. It's absolutely needed, but we need to call upon the Lord for it. So may the Lord stir us up to pray. May we say with the psalmist, quicken us and we will call upon thy name. Oh, may the Lord give to his church today the spirit of renewed intercession, which is in itself the harbinger of impending blessing. I just want to finish with a quotation from Spurgeon. I believe when you look back on Spurgeon's ministry, it was largely a revival ministry. He saw revival in his lifetime. And in speaking about the great subject of revival, he said this. Is there any limitation in the Spirit of God? Why should not the feeblest minister become the means of salvation to thousands? Is God's arm shortened? 
My brethren, when I bid you pray that God would make the ministry quick and powerful like a two-edged sword for the salvation of sinners, I'm not setting you a hard, much less an impossible task. We have but to ask and to get. Before we cry, God will answer. And while we're yet speaking, He will hear. From this moment, you may pray more. From this moment, God may bless the ministry more. From this hour, other pulpits may become more full of life and vigor than before. From this moment, the Word of God may flow and run and rush and get to itself an amazing and boundless victory. Only wrestle in prayer. Meet together in your houses. Go to your closets. Be instant. Be earnest in season and out of season. Agonize for souls. And all that you have heard shall be forgotten in what you shall see. And all that others have told you shall be as nothing compared with what ye shall hear with your ears. And behold, with your eyes in your own midst. May the Lord revive us again for his glory. Amen.